0: This week's guest is Dr. Rob Elms from the Chemistry Department here at Maynooth University. Having completed his undergraduate in Medical Chemistry at Trinity College Dublin, Rob undertook a PhD in Trinity, synthesising ruthenium-based metal complexes used in cancer treatment. After two years in post-doctoral research in Australia, Rob returned to Ireland to take up his position as a lecturer here in Maynooth. His research interests now include supramolecular chemistry with a focus on designing drug delivery vehicles and environmental sensors. After a Nobel Prize was awarded in the field in 2016, Rob was named by Silicon Republic as one of the five scientists leading the way in the field in Ireland. A supplementary image describing some of the work that Rob talks about in the podcast is available on our Twitter page, at BehindLabMU. And welcome to the podcast and um, I guess maybe you could kick us off a little bit by telling us about uh, what first got you interested in science?
1: Um, I would say that it was secondary school probably the first yeah. time I was really exposed to science properly at junior cert level where I had a particularly good teacher mm-hmm. um, and he was quite passionate I think about science and because I have I would say a fairly logical mind um, I took a shine to it, I enjoyed it, I was quite good at it, and I think from there, with my biology teacher in particular, um, that yeah, I suppose when you have a good teacher, they kind of stimulate your interest in it, and then when you realise actually it is quite interesting, I think that was really kind of the first time I realised that science is something that I might like to pursue.
0: And it, it was a biology teacher, not a chemistry teacher?
1: Yeah, well, it, I suppose what it was, it was more so because I think at junior, so at that stage, you, t- you learn science.
0: Yeah. In particular, yeah. it's
1: but it's divided into chemistry. You do chemistry at one stage, you do biology at another stage, and then you do physics at another time. But it was the bi- I do remember it was the biology portion of it in particular. I suppose understanding how things around you are sort of functioning and working, yeah, in, at a deeper level, you know, I think that was probably the bit that yeah stimulated my curiosity at that stage. Yeah.
0: Cool. So then th- this was in secondary school. So then going on to undergraduate, how how did you decide to go into medical chemistry and not some other area of of biology if the original interest had
1: been. Yeah so I suppose it it, again it's more from from once I finished the junior I went on to do the Leaving Cert I kept on chemistry and biology for the Leaving Cert and again I suppose that it was at this stage that I had a particularly good chemistry teacher so again at Leaving Cert it's separated and my chemistry teacher was very good. Um, and he helped to explain what most people would see as a very difficult subject. He explained mm-hmm. it very well, and I, again, I suppose I took to it. I, had a, I have quite a logical way of thinking, and I think that sort of um, appealed to me. But in addition, then, I was studying biology. I really liked biology, yeah. and my thinking was that medicinal chemistry, the course that I studied um, in college, was a mixture of the two, really. Yeah. It was a sort of using chemistry to make things that will affect biology, essentially. So making new drugs, making, designing new drugs. That was kind of what, I suppose, appealed to me. What would have inspired me was the teacher, but then what kind of stimulated me to go on and study it more in university was that, that mixture of the two, the two subjects, chemistry and biology.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how... Things like that, you 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 can't really separate the person and the, the subject sometimes when there's a particular person. Yeah, I, th-
1: I think it's quite a common theme. I think if you went around to a lot of people working um, in science, in academia or in industry, you'll yeah. find that the majority of them have been sort of inspired along the way yeah. by a teacher or a person who has sort of infected them, I suppose, with the, mm-hmm. the curiosity yeah. that they get. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, And then going on to, you did your undergraduate in Trinity College in medicinal chemistry. Yeah. And was there a particular aspect through the undergraduate? Because I think the chemistry changes quite a lot from leaving cert to undergraduate. Was there an area where you were just like, oh my God, this is so difficult?
1: Yeah, there were lots. I mean, I think, um, again, science no matter which of the sciences you do, it's a difficult subject, yeah. right? So there's a lot of work associated with it. I know for me, it's funny saying it now, but organic chemistry for me was was tricky. And I think, look, reflecting back on it now, I think it's difficult because it's almost like learning a new language, yeah. right? So with a lot of things, you can almost relate. To, if you're studying biology, you can relate a lot of the things you're learning about to everyday life. Whereas with chemistry, in particular, organic chemistry, when you're learning about... The chemical structures and the way to draw new structures and all about strange concept things like chirality um that you you don't generally speaking think about on a day-to-day life it's very abstract it's very different from what you learn so there's nothing it's quite difficult to relate it back to how it's effective in your everyday life curly arrow mechanisms i remember seeing those for the first time kind of like being what is going on here but i suppose i
0: wonder if it's some kind of joke and it's, it's none of it's real yeah. and they're just drawn curly arrows and well it, it, exactly. it is
1: very you know theoretical really yeah. you know yeah. there's not in real life there's not big arrows that are bringing
0: exactly. electrons from yeah. one
1: place to the other but um, I think it was as it took me time and mm-hmm. I, I suppose a bit of work to study and try and figure out exactly what's going on but once you do get into it and again I suppose it's like like I say learning a language when you mm-hmm. when you start out learning a language it's difficult and it can be frustrating but then when you start to get a handle on the language then you can really start to enjoy it and express yourself in the way that yeah. you want and I, yeah. I mean it's a bit corny to say it, but it's a little bit similar in, Yeah. In chemistry, yeah. Really. I can see that. Yeah. And
0: with that I think I think a lot of people would relate to that difficulty with, with the mechanisms and trying to express things in that way. What would you what would you advise like as a like a tip to, to get <coughs> the hang of mechanisms?
1: definitely the best way is to practice them it's the only way really right Mm -hmm. so I think if I had my way the way that I would teach organic chemistry is in a room with no more than 10 students and we go through problems because that's the only way really to learn organic chemistry or to understand properly organic chemistry it's very difficult your first exposure in first year to organic chemistry is in a room with about 300 people and with one lecturer sitting standing at the top dictating to you well this is what you need to know and this is what you need to know Um, and I know that in those large lectures it's going to be quite noisy there's lots of people to to distract you it's just not an ideal environment in which to learn organic chemistry but then it's 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 very difficult to you know with a big science class it's impossible to have that many teachers you know to that many students it's just it's not feasible but in terms of study tips for organic chemistry I would say practice Practice and as much as you can. There are numerous sort of books that contain problems and practice problems. Those are definitely the best way. When I was sort of in my final year in university, that's I actually um, invested in a whiteboard. And I used to just do okay, yeah. in, in my no, I got
0: a whiteboard too. Yeah,
1: in, in in my uh it was in my bedroom where I was studying at the time or in the library in, in college. Um, and I just used to write out the mechanisms over and over again. And then, it, and it's funny, you kind of then, it starts to click. And it's not even that you're learning them, you're just kind of starting to understand, okay, every time an arrow comes from a place and goes to a place, a bond is breaking or forming, and it just starts to make a bit more sense. And I think you start to see patterns emerge. So yeah. again, organic chemistry can be quite daunting, because you're looking at, God, how can I learn all of that? But actually, when you boil it down, it's a few simple rules that gen- in general dictate how those curly arrows will move.
0: Well, well, obviously you got the hang of them eventually, and um, <laughs> did well enough to go on to PhD. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, what your PhD was on and why you decided to, to go for a PhD? Uh,
1: yeah, so I suppose similar theme. I think my think. I always kind of wanted to do a PhD because uh, a, a brother. My brother works um, in the pharmaceutical industry, and I remember him at the time. He's about six years older than me, and him saying to me that. If you want to go on and have a career in science, it's a good idea to have a PhD because quite often you might go on and have a career in science with an undergraduate degree, but you might reach a certain level um, in the company where you're no longer eligible for promotion because you don't have a PhD. So the advice I got at the time was better off, to, if you want to pursue a career in science, to get a PhD after undergraduate, and then you can go and decide whether you want to pursue academia whether want to pursue industry or whether want to now, watch is quite common is science communication, and um, there's lots of different career paths you can take. Yeah. But working in the sciences, you'll find that the majority of people who are at the sort of higher levels, um, have PhDs. Um, the reason I chose the area I chose was again I remember the way you I suppose you you look for a PhD is you, you want to find a supervisor. Who's doing conducting research that you're interested in? Yeah. And my interest, similar to what at the leaving search stage was, I liked the mis- the mixture of chemistry and biology, sort of using chemistry to solve problems in yeah. biology. So what I had really wanted, I had done a project for my final year in uh, France, in um, University of Montpellier, and there they we had um, I would spent six months in a research lab doing synthesis, organic chemistry. And we made a compound, and this compound was heat sensitive, light sensitive, air sensitive, um, water sensitive. It was basically sensitive to everything. So if it came into contact with the world at all, it would degrade and fall apart. So every time we would do a reaction, it would have to be under a dry atmosphere, water free, light free, everything. And we were making this compound to send for biological testing to a lab in Italy. And the day we sent it, we got, or the day it was received in the lab in Italy, we got a call to say that the biologist who had taken the compound had just opened the bottle, no. looked at it, oh, left no. it on his bench, and then went home for the weekend. So all of the work, I suppose, that I had spent the six months doing was straight away down the tubes. And I suppose what I, my thinking was that if I had been able to do the biology myself, you sort of you get to know the chemistry and biology working at the sort of in between chemistry and biology, you get an understanding of both, and you kind of avoid silly kind of mishaps like that. That so, was a big one, though. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It was pretty demoralising. Again, especially because there's a lot of work goes into making these things, and yeah, for someone just to open the bottle, look at it, and then go home for the weekend. Did you and didn't leave have it any more? Bed. Was it With all just the, all, all sent? All so gone. that would so I, I presume someone else would have gone back and tried to to resynthesize yeah. the compound again. But, yeah, a bit of a nightmare. But I think, yeah, so my main sort of aim, therefore, was to, to be able to do both, to, yeah. to have an understanding of the chemistry and be able to also have an understanding of the biology and be able to sort of sort of flip between the two, I suppose, be both chemically minded and biologically minded at the same time. Yeah.
0: And going into a little bit more detail about the PhD, what, mm. what exactly was the topic that you worked yeah, on? Yes,
1: so my topic, what we did was I wanted to make um, biological probes Um, and medicinal agents I suppose what I mean by biological probe is something that it's a chemical agent that you can use to understand a biological event or something like that so specifically speaking what we made were ruthenium based uh, metal complexes and what they were able to do on one hand was that they would be uptaken by cells and then they would change their fluorescence properties upon entering the nucleus so what that means is you kind of almost like you would say a light switch so if you're looking at these cells under a microscope, it would stain the nucleus uh, red um, and that would show you exactly where the DNA in that um, cell was. Um, but in in a, the second stage, they were also used as phototherapeutic agents. So what I mean by that is, I guess if you have, normal under normal circumstances, uh, if you are suffering with a disease such as cancer, um, there are a lot of sort of harmful toxic side effects associated with a lot of chemotherapies. And what our idea was that if you can make a compound that is completely non-toxic, so it does nothing, um, but you can then activate it to become toxic in the site that you want it activated. And we were using light to do that. So essentially being able to switch on the cytotoxicity of the ruthenium complex in an area where you wanted it to, to be.
0: And how do you get the light in that particular area?
1: Literally shine... So in, in the clinic, so these are clinically available, not the ones I made, but other, op- other options of phototherapeutic agents are clinically available, and they use a fiber optic cable. Externally? Well, they would say, let's say, for example, again, if a lot of it are used for superficial cancers. So if you have melanoma, for example, okay. you can just literally shine a torch on the surface well, of the skin yeah. and the compound becomes activated after it's been um, administered. Or if you have an internal tumor, they can be administered intravenously. The compound arrives in the area where the tumour is and then they put a, a fibre optic cable into the area and that fibre optic will photo excite the compound and cause the cancer cells selectively to be killed, essentially. That's the the idea behind it. Wow,
0: that's really important, though.
1: Yeah, so, well, again, I suppose it's this... The, the, the common theme is using the... I was able to synthesise the compounds, study the compounds' fluorescence properties um, and then go on to do the biology myself. So I would have done not quite as far as getting them into to animals but using cell culture so we we've got some really nice work where we show that you treat these compounds with cells the cells will take them up readily and then if you shine a light on both a healthy population and a a population that's been administered with the drug the the population that has the drug is is killed rapidly whereas the ones that have no drug are are perfectly happy and healthy Yeah, Yeah. yeah
0: And, and with the PhD, in terms of the process of the PhD, mm. I guess it's very dif- different to undergraduate the way that you learn. Um, what was the most important thing you think you learned from that process?
1: Um. Yeah, so self-motivation, reader, right? So I guess you, you get a lot of help, we'll say, when you're at your undergrad. You get lectures, you get tutorials, you get labs, which are all sort of set up um, to give you a specific learning outcome right so they're all designed to to give you an education whereas a phd is much more ad hoc in that you're given a problem Mm. so in my case it was like we need you to make these compounds so these are compounds that no one has ever made before there's no method available for making them in any books so you have to go in to the scientific literature and figure it out for yourself and i think that's the main difference between undergraduate and postgraduate you're there's a lot more onus put on you trying to motivate yourself and be resilient. I think that's the other thing about the process of a PhD is that quite often you might make it, you you kind of formulate a theory in yourself, right, well, I think I can make this compound via this pathway. It should, you know, go no problem. There should be no problems. But then you encounter a lot of problems that you might not have foreseen. And the sort of resilience to sort of keep going and keep trying and go back and change and uh, use different methods. I think that's the key because it can be very frustrating when you're in the middle of trying to solve a problem yeah. but when you actually get to the end it's very satisfying and I think yeah probably that the, that, the ability to be patient and keep trying all the different um, methods that are available to you and not just giving up I think it's, it's, it's quite tempting at times especially in organic chemistry when you're dealing with a really difficult reaction yeah. like just isn't working to give up But there's always other ways and there's always other means by which you can get to the the compound that you want to get to. And do
0: you think was it difficult to balance that needing to persevere Mm. and to be really diligent and not burning out?
1: Yes. And I think that's where the help of your supervisor comes in. Yeah. If you have a supervisor who's heavily involved in your project, that's what their job is, Mm -hmm. is to sort of steer you in the right direction. If they think you're going down a dead end, for example, be able to say, well, maybe you've spent a lot of time on that. it's kind of yielded no good results nothing has come to fruition maybe we could have a look at doing something slightly different um so yes there is a balance there but i think it's a balance that you've given help with yeah um and that's you know if you have a supervisor or a mentor that's that's their job essentially and you know certainly in the department in in Maynooth there's a lot of experience there so people have a lot of experience in working on these types of projects on mentoring students Um, so i think you can go into a PhD kind of knowing in the back of your mind that there's a lot of help and there's a lot of support there. Yeah. Um, and I think it's changing. Traditionally speaking, in organic chemistry, sometimes um, postgraduate students would have been just given a project and said, right, off you go, you work on that. Yeah. Whereas now I think there's much more help and support available, which is definitely a good thing because it makes the, the process, which is already quite a difficult process, a lot of hard work, mm-hmm. but it makes it that little bit easier, I think.
0: Okay, and yeah. fast forwarding then a little bit from there, um, when you came to Minutes, could you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit of the work that you've been doing here in Minutes since since you came here?
1: Yes, yeah, so I suppose the overall theme of what we do, again, you, you can't escape from your training, if you know what I mean, so yeah. where I've done my PhD and then I did a postdoc. So that the research that I did after my undergraduate kind of it guides you on where you want to go when you start your own independent research career.
0: And was that very connected then to your PhD? No, I wouldn't
1: say, to, like... In a, in a similar theme quite different so again you have to move away because my research supervisor he still researches in that area so yeah. when you have start in your own independent career you have to geek out your own area of research what I, the broad area of what i want to do is working on responsive systems so again with the theme of chemistry and biology it's sort of using synthetic chemistry to make tools that biologists can use okay. for example so i suppose The best example of this is a recent uh, paper we published last year, where we had synthesized a fluorescence compound. So this compound emits light that is blue. So if you looked at it under UV light, that, that compound would appear blue. And what we want to do is to get that compound to respond spectroscopically. So if if it meets an analyte of some kind, that it changes its fluorescence properties and it then appears green.
0: And by an analyte, you mean... So
1: I mean, so again, going back to that example, what we made was this compound, which emits blue. Yeah. We wanted to find a particular enzyme. So we wanted to show that an enzyme exists in a certain environment. And that enzyme would come along. It would react with this uh, probe, which is fluorescing blue and after the reaction with the enzyme it now fluoresces green okay. so it's almost yeah. a signal it's a signaling molecule to tell you that a particular type of reaction has gone and the reason we did it is because the enzyme that we were studying is highly up over again in cancer cells yeah and so the idea is as a sort of a diagnostic tool where if you look at this using a fluorescence microscope it will appear to fluoresce blue in healthy cells but if it is under reductive stress as would be the case in a tumor it fluoresces green, so again, it's a sort of a signal to to show that the molecule has been, I suppose, changed in such a way as to, to to show that it's met the enzyme that we were we were studying. So it's it's again going back to that theme of it's it's a molecule that we've made, and is responsive in that it's responding to that enzyme, and then it's giving us a signal. So it's telling us essentially that this is where I am, and I've just met an enzyme. So you can use a lot of powerful techniques. Such as confocal microscopy to sort of measure these types of responses, especially when you start to look at them in a in a biological environment or in that case in a in a cellular environment.
0: And is the aim then, if you if you're developing these bio fluorescent tools, is, it, is the aim always to have them um, used in medicine, like in a hospital setting, or?
1: There's various applications you can use these for. So these responsive sort of fluorophores in general, you, they can be used uh, for environmental sensing. So again, if you say have an area that's contaminated. With a a certain type of pollution you can design a molecule that when it meets a a certain type of pollutant it will give you a signal and it will signify the presence of that pollutant
0: so in like lakes and things
1: yeah absolutely or a very topical one at the moment is um, water contamination Mm -hmm. so if you have water contaminated with a certain type of bacteria those bacteria will secrete certain types of enzymes and if you have a molecule that's responsive to those enzymes it will tell you that the presence Tell you about the presence of the bacteria in that water sample.
0: And if you were to pick pick one thing <clears> that you think would be the coolest thing that you can do with these biofluorescent tools, what what do you think it was?
1: Um, there's loads. Um, I suppose one of the ways that we're looking for to do it at the moment is to be able to build a molecule that will respond again. So going back to that water testing um, application, where it will give you a fluorescence change, but being able to use your phone. Because everyone has smartphones now so being able to use your phone to measure that response so okay. at the moment if you want to detect bacterial contamination in a water sample you will take a water sample you'll bring it to the lab you'll grow up the bacteria in culture over a week or so yeah. and then you measure through various techniques the level of contamination of that water whereas if you think about it if you can just take a water sample put it into a, a little capsule of some kind and insert it into your phone and then your phone will give you the answer as to the level of contamination. I think that would be particularly powerful.
0: And is that being worked on?
1: That's one of the projects we're working on at the moment. So one of the PhD students in my lab is, is working on that at the moment, yeah. And
0: what, so you put the capsule where in your phone? Do you put? Well, it's
1: this, this still in the design process. Okay. But what we're going to do is to design a holder that so your phone can sit into. Yeah. And then you'll take your water sample in a cuvette or some type of glassware that contains our synthetic molecule. Um, and so the reaction will happen in that, and then you'll use the camera on your phone to measure the response.
0: That's really cool.
1: It will be cool if it's in. It's at the, so David Flood, who's currently uh, working on that project, he just started in October. So it's at the beginning of a, a four-year project. Okay. but So far, so good. Things are looking good. At yeah. The moment. Yeah.
0: And um, and as well as that, you work with um, biological scaffolds and using peptides as biological scaffolds. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So I suppose again if you take the overall theme of this responsive agent so yes biological probes is one element the other is is medicinal chemistry again so using mm. prodrugs, i guess so what a pro-drug is is a molecule that is non-toxic when administered but becomes activated um at a, a site of infection or um, disease and so what we we use peptides and um, in particular cyclic peptides because i suppose there's a number of reasons they're derived from natural what your body makes anyway so they're, they're non-toxic, they're typically non-immunogenic from a synthetic chemistry point of view. They're quite easy to synthesize and there's a massive amount of structural diversity. So you can make some very intricate and interesting uh, molecules using peptides. Yeah. And so they're very effective, or they should be effective in terms of both drugs, um, in terms of um, f- fluorescence probes that we spoke of before, but also um, from the perspective of supramolecular chemistry. So using Again, um, it's a different field of chemistry, but it's it, using these large scaffolds uh, to recognise different types of, of analytes in solution.
0: So this is all this is only used in medical chemistry?
1: No, not necessarily. So it, I suppose the the field of supramolecular chemistry. So the field of supramolecular chemistry is it's the study of how molecules interact with each other. Okay. Okay, and it's quite a fundamental um, field. So maybe not so applied. So cyclic compa- cyclic peptides are used. For various reasons. They're used quite extensively in supramolecular chemistry, but they're used across industrial applications, medical applications, biological applications, in sensing applications. There's a whole host of potential uses for them. But I mean, lots of antibiotics, for example, are in fact cyclic peptides. Okay. And they're, I suppose they're useful from a medicinal perspective over linear peptides because they're much more metabolically stable. So again, if you're taking a drug, that is a peptide, your body is designed to metabolize peptides, which essentially are small fragments of protein. Yeah. Um, if you cyclize them, your body finds it more difficult to metabolize them. And again, if you're, if you're administering a drug, metabolism is very important mm-hmm. because it needs to get to its site of action and not be metabolized before it gets there. Um, and so cyclic peptides, there's a number of them that have been entered uh, clinical trials and none from our lab um, so far. But uh, again, I suppose that's just to show that they're very effective um, synthetic scaffolds for various different types of uses.
0: And you you talked there about the the trials. When you do things like that, how how is your work kind of regulated in terms of what you can and can't do, or are there rules around what you can and can't do? Y-
1: yeah, there. Well, there's there's ethics committees. So there's there's very strict ethics laws and ethics guidelines in which we have to follow. I mean, as a chemist, we don't. we don't encounter it so much it more comes into play when you're dealing when you're bringing things along through clinical trials you go from cellular studies into small animal studies large animal studies human studies so i've never done anything that's gotten into large animal studies for example so there's always ethical approval over everything but so far for me we haven't um, we haven't gotten into the stage where we need to look at things from a you know a very stringent ethical perspective yeah, yeah. because again most of the time the main considerations in a chemistry lab are more safety considerations than ethical considerations because we're dealing with uh, quite often substances that might be hazardous or flammable or toxic so you need to you know manage the safety element certainly in a chemistry lab yeah, a lot yeah. yeah
0: okay um so in the past year of your research um would there be a particular element that you thought was really difficult, or at the time you were like, "How am I? How am I going to get get to the bottom of this?"
1: Um, in the past year, I would say so. So, just from my personal view, um, it's four. It's about it just over four years since I started my job in Maynooth. So, okay. I think the last four years have been learning for me because previous to that, so I guess your your career is you do school and then you go undergraduate in university, then I did four years of a PhD, and then I did a little bit of postdoctoral work in PhD, and then in I went to Sydney and did another three years of postdoctoral work there before moving back to Maynooth. So all of that is all either studying or conducting research myself in the lab. Yeah. yeah. But when you take up a position in a university as a lecturer, you still have to continue to do your research, but you also have to do A lot of teaching you have to supervise project students you have to manage labs you also have to do a lot of administrative duties so being a coordinator say I was first year coordinator for a number of years so you have to sort of keep an eye and make sure that all the the programs at undergraduate level are performing so I think the most challenging thing I've had to do in the last four years is trying to continue to keep my research up and running um while balancing it with all of the the teaching that goes on and I think (laughs) yeah exactly and there's a lot of plates and uh It's one thing when you're heavily involved in one area and all your focus is there to then be put into a situation where you have to spread your focus over various other areas of your job. So that has been difficult. In terms of the chemistry, I'm not in the lab myself so much. So there's six uh, people working in my research group at the moment. So they do the majority of the actual chemistry. So I can't say that it's been particularly challenging for me. There have been projects that there have been difficulties with, but I guess I get the easier ride these days because I don't get into the lab so much. And do you miss it? I do, yeah. uh, very much, actually, yeah. So I, I, I suppose it was, for me, the most enjoyable part of my job then was being in the lab and doing the chemistry and conducting reactions and studying these types of molecules. Um, but I'm still very close to it, and I suppose the advantage is that when you've got more people in the lab. It's not just me doing my own thing, there's like there's a whole team of us. Yeah. And so we're working on a sort of a diversity of projects. Um and so it's nice to be involved in a number of projects as opposed to just one. Yeah. And kind of have an overview of all of them and, and um yeah see how they're progressing.
0: Yeah. I, I guess we're running a bit short on time. Mm-hmm. So maybe if we just end with one last question about um if you were to look at an area of chemistry outside of the area that you work on, yeah. um, what what thing in chemistry, What what's going on in chemistry now that you think is really exciting?
1: Um, I don't know if it's spe- you would specifically say it's chemistry. It's probably more physics. Okay. But it is something that, it's a technique that's being developed that I think will have huge implications on the field of chemistry. So it's a technique called cryo-electron uh, microscopy. It won the Nobel Prize in 2017, maybe. Um, but it's a technique that enables you to essentially get a, a diffraction electron diffraction pattern uh, from solid material so previously the best characterization technique in organic chemistry would be x-ray crystallography where you would have to grow crystals get a diffraction pattern x-ray diffraction pattern and then relate that back to a chemical structure to give you essentially a picture of a chemical structure in mm-hmm. it um, whereas now the, the cryo electron microscopy is using electron beams to give you a very high resolution Structural characterization. So at the moment, we would use proton NMR, carbon NMR, mass spec, infrared spectroscopy, melting point analysis, various different techniques to characterize a compound. So, to say if you've made a compound in the lab, to say that you've made the compound you think you have. Yeah. Whereas this cryo electron microscopy, if it develops the way it's currently developing, will make all of that secondary. And cryo electron microscopy, I suspect, will become one of the most important techniques in organic chemistry, anyway, in, in the future. And is it
0: meant to work quickly?
1: Very quickly, so it only takes a couple of minutes. Wow. Um, and you can get, you can basically, the computer will give you a picture of the molecule that you've you've drawn, so or you've made, I should say.
0: your giant NMR machine is almost redundant? Almost,
1: almost. I'm not, I think we're a long way off NMR being redundant, but I think this could be the next big breakthrough yeah, in yeah. structural characterization, yeah.
0: Brilliant. Well, it's been really interesting to uh, to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time out of your day um, to, to talk to me. So, thank you.
1: No worries. Thanks very much.